Alright, you guys can be seated. Guys, it is pretty freaking cool to be up here and get to preach to you guys and preach to myself in the process. So, uh, thanks for being here. Um, thanks for um, just the semester in general. Seriously, I love getting to do this job. I know Hannah does as well and Lucas as well. So, thankful for you guys. But uh, as you know, we've been going through Genesis this semester, and we're going to take a little bit of an intermission from Genesis, and we're going to be looking at two different psalms this week and next week. And both psalms are pretty different from one another. This one is a psalm of praise, but next week we'll go through a psalm of lament. Um, and these psalms have a lot to say about the character of God, who he is, and what, who we are in relation to him in this world. Um, so let's go ahead and read Psalm 8. The words are right here. If you have a Bible, you can open it. Otherwise, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. So Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you guys pray with me real quick? Father, we thank you for the fact that you are that, our Father. We thank you for the ways in which you've been at work in this world and in our hearts. I ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear this text. Uh, Be with us tonight. Send your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was about 10 or 11 years old, in the summers, my parents would be at work and I'd be at home with my sisters. And me and my childhood best friend, Shane, we would roam the neighborhood in in the beach area where we lived kind of in search of adventure, in search of something that we could call our own that wasn't the house because that was our parents. And we would kind of just find these things. Like we, we would go into bushes and we would use the bushes as cover to like throw pine cones at people or something like that. We were just these like little tyrants in the neighborhood, just these little rascals that people were just kind of like, I really don't like those kids. But anyway, that's a whole that's aside. One day, one day we were actually wandering through the woods in the, like behind our neighborhood and it was kind of a secret route to this park. But we had never gone this like, exact route before. And as we're wandering through the woods, we stumbled upon this huge double-decker tree fort. It was like epic. Like as a kid, you're just like, what? Like this is idyllic. Like this is exactly what we've been looking for. Like this is what we've always wanted. And so, like, we go into the tree fort, and, like, clearly there was, like, college students who had been in it, because there was, like, littered beer cans everywhere, and you're just, like, clearly there's someone who was here. But it had seemed like it had been months since 
they had actually occupied it. And so we were like, all right, this is ours now. We got this. So like customizing it, like putting in like all these different things, inviting our friends over to it and being like, this is our freaking tree fort. This is legit. And so like we'd have all our friends over. We did this all summer long. And you go, we go back to school. We didn't go to it as much. And we come back the following summer. And we go to the woods again. And we notice all this caution tape around the woods. And we're like, okay, that's weird. You know, being the little tyrants in the neighborhood that we were, we're like, all right, we're going through. So we go through, through the caution tape, and we see all of this construction equipment in our tree fort in just shambles, completely destroyed. And as kids, you know, it's right now you're like, oh, it's just a tree fort, whatever. But as, for us, it was like, we lost it. Like, we don't have this place to, like, reside in anymore. We don't have this, like, little home away from home that we've, like, always wanted. And I tell you this story because sometimes it feels like the world that we're in and the things that happen, in one moment, things can feel so full and so full of joy. But then all of a sudden, things can fall apart. And sometimes it feels like we have control over things in our lives. And then the next moment feel like we have no control at all over what's going on. Sometimes life can feel chaotic, like there is no meaning to it all. But the psalm tells us something about this. The psalm tells us something about ourselves in this world that we inhabit and the God who created this world. So there's three fundamental things that this psalm is provoking us to see. It's provoking us to see the glory of God expressed in creation It's provoking us to see the mindfulness of God in knowing us. And it's provoking us to see the pursuit of God. So first, it's provoking us to see the glory of God. I said that this psalm is a a psalm of praise. The Israelites would have been together singing this together, collectively. And they they would sing it together in honor of who who God is and what he's done for them. And this is true of us as well. We, we need to be encouraging each other. We need to be reminding ourselves of who God is and what he has done for us and who he has created us to be. But if we're honest, you know, if we really think about it, we'll admit that this is probably something that's very difficult for us to do in our culture. You know, we live in a culture where we're constantly reminded that we need to make something of ourselves so that we can become worthy of praise. Do you feel that tension? Do you feel that tension? You know, we all worship something. You know, whether we realize it or not, we often worship those things in our lives that we think will make us more full, more human, more meaningful. You know, for the Israelites, in this case, it might have been like a golden calf that they built with their own two hands. But for us, it might be our reputation. It might be success. It might be having the perfect boyfriend or the perfect girlfriend. For some of us, it might be financial security. But nothing that we create can bear the full weight of being fully alive and fully human. Nothing can give us the sort of meaning that's going to last. And this psalm provokes us at the beginning and the end to look outside the things that we are making, to be reminded that we have a God who created this world that we live in. And also created us. That we have a God who is worthy of praise for the world that he has created. Including us. 
And the psalmist begins, David, the psalmist begins by looking at the stars. When was the last time you guys went stargazing? It was like one of my favorite things to do in college when we were bored. We'd just lay out blankets in my backyard and we'd just stare at the stars. I know that sounds like kind of weird, but that was like the thing we used to do. Um, but if you haven't, you should. You really, really should. One of my favorite writers, his name was Fyodor Dostoevsky. He used to go and stare at the stars to console some of his deepest, darkest doubts about the world and about who God is and about himself. For him, it was a reminder of the majesty of God and also his care. All of creation reflects God's glory. From the depths of space to the patterns on your fingertips, all of creation reflects his glory. And it's the same God who created that, the stars, who created us. In all of his glory and splendor, he created each one of us. We were not created from chaos. We weren't created from a mass assembly line. We each have different personalities and distinctions about us. As we looked at creation earlier this semester in Genesis, we, we, we learned that man and women were the pinnacle of this creation. Have you considered that? When you stare into the night sky and see the stars and the constellations and the potential meteor showers, do you realize that you are imbued with more glory and honor than even those things as a human? God created this world with beauty, and that includes you. The psalm says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. It can be easy to think that the only way we can be honored is by what we make of ourselves. But the psalm is reminding us that we already have honor because God, the one who formed this world from nothing, is our maker. But David still asks this question. He still asks this question of what is, my, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why has he given us this honor? What did we do to deserve this honor? And even more, what must God think of us now that we have misused the honor that he's given us? All of us feel the pressure of not living up to our potential because none of us lived up to our original purpose. David reminds us in this psalm that God gave us dominion over this earth. He's echoing Genesis 1, 26, and 28. But like we learned in Adam and Eve earlier in the semester, Uh, By them eating of the tree that God forbade of them to eat, humans became a shattered remnant of what they were originally. God gave us dominion over this earth, but we sought dominion over God himself. And we became a shattered remnant of what we were intended to be. Francis Schaeffer, he's a theologian and a writer, a previous theologian and writer, he once remarked that humans are glorious ruins, We contain, each of us, immense dignity, each and every one of us, but each and every one of us is also a fragment of what we once were. None of us live up to the dignity and the honor in which God had intended for us as humans. And the honor we contain only exists because we are created in the image of that maker. And there's a difference between our honor as creatures and God's honor as creator, even from the beginning. 
But now there's a separation that exists between God's holiness and righteousness in our brokenness, in our fallenness. So, this, the, so the psalm goes through verses 6 through 8, and there's two lenses in which we need to read it. We need to read it, one, with the lens of our original purpose, that we were created with great honor and created to have dominion over the earth. But we also need to read it with the lens that we are now fallen. We don't fully live up to our human intention. There's still a sense that we have dominion over the earth. There's still a sense in which humans build and create and cultivate. Um, even Even as a college student, you're planning and training to be something in the world, whether that's like an engineer or a doctor or whatever else, social worker, like that's part of it. And that's true that we do, in a sense, still have dominion. But on the other hand, we, the land that we walk on now is cursed. And it's cursed because of what happened in Eden. And we experience this curse in different ways. You know, we experience disappointment in our work. We experience, I, I know for a fact, I experienced this as a college student, I know you guys do too, of studying for hours and hours and hours for a test and bombing it. Sometimes things just don't work out the way you think they are or will. Like, you just think that you're going to get this result and you don't get it. We often feel like we have no control here. We often feel like we're out of control. Our tree houses get bulldozed. We, loo- we have lost what we once had, and yet we feel like we're intended for more. Often it feels like we're slaves to our grades, to our work, to our physical appearance, to our smartphones, to our resumes, or how about this, to your parents' expectations. That list goes on and on. But the greatest testament to this curse is the fact that we will all ultimately return to dust. We all will ultimately die one day. And those nice resumes and families that we've been pursuing will ultimately be forgotten. But as, as, as Tolkien, as Tolkien, I, I feel like I always quote him, he says, we all long for Eden. We're all constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. But despite it all, despite the exile, despite the curse, God still cares for his exiled creations. This psalm is a reminder that not only is God huge in his power and glory, but he also has his eyes on us in the specifics of our lives. God is both infinite yet personal. Let this sink in, right? The God of the universe is one that is mindful of you. He knows you to the core. He knows your deepest fears, your deepest insecurities. He knows the test that you're studying for and the romantic interest that you have. And he cares for you. You God sees us in our little tree forts and he's mindful of us. This God who is ultimately far above us cares for us even when our tree forts get bulldozed. And the fact that God is above us, yet cares for us and is mindful of us, is very contrary to the way that we operate as humans. You know, we would rather relate to those who are above us because the people who are above us 
can offer us something. The people who are above us can help us reach those goals that we, need, that we want so desperately. And if we think about it in, in our relationship to God, we have to realize that we don't, we don't offer God anything. And this is likely at the core of David's question in this. Who are we in our lowliness and brokenness that you, God, are mindful of us and care for us? And this question itself implies something of God's kindness. God has not only given us the ability to look out upon creation and see that it's good and admire his making, but he's also given us the capacity to talk to him and to ask these sorts of questions to him. The God of the universe is one who wants to have a relationship with you. He's one who wants to converse with you because he cares about you. In all our lowliness and brokenness and pettiness, God in all of his glory wants to be in a relationship with you. And it's not because of what you offer him. It's not because of the praise that you have brought on yourself. This psalm reminds us God cares for all of his creation. In the words of Jesus in Matthew, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus reminds us of our elevated status over the smaller things in creation, yet reminds us that God even cares for the smallest things in creation. And if God cares for even the smallest things in creation, how much more does he care about his most honored creation? Us, humans. Not only that, God cares for lowly things, but he even uses them for his purposes. In verse 2, we're shown that God uses babies and infants to still his enemies. God uses the voice of the immature to silence his enemies. God's way is one in which the weak are utilized to shame the strong. Like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Again, Tolkien, have to. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's, it's the little hobbits. It's not the elves and the humans who bring an end to evil. Ultimately, the hobbits are used to destroy evil. And it's like J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter. It's the socially anxious and angsty Harry Potter who brings defeat to Voldemort. And he does it in like the most paradoxical of ways. He, he does it through sacrifice for his friends. He doesn't do it through grandeur and power. He does it through self-sacrifice. But all of these stories are just derivative of the way in which God uses the lowliest means to bring about the greatest redemption. All of these stories are just a derivative, are just a reflection, a faint reflection of the way in which God uses the lowliest means to bring about the greatest redemption. And if you look at the structure of the psalm, you'll notice that in each stanza, in descending order, is an order of from great to weak. You know, we have God's glory to the infants to his enemies. We have from God to man. We have from angelic beings to man to the beasts to the birds and to the sea creatures. And all of this is encapsulated in God's glory, the beginning and the end. All great and lowly things work together for God's glory. 
All great and lowly things work together for God's glory. And in the incarnation of Jesus, we have to see that his infinite glory transcends our lowly human estate. This infinite God in all of his majesty has, has had come into the world, into our human estate. And as a biblical scholar once wrote, God's remembering, God's consciousness and, and mindfulness of us, it always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. In other words, God's mindfulness of us implies that he is already at work to pursue us and to rescue us. God is in pursuit of his creation in us. All the way back from Genesis, God has been pursuing his people. Even after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, he tells the serpent that an offspring of the woman is coming that will deal a fatal blow to his head. God, even from the fall, all the way back to Genesis 3, all the way from Genesis 1, has been in the process of restoration. He's been seeking after his exiled people in his broken world. And he's gone to the greatest lengths to do it. It's interesting to note that the New Testament authors uh, open up a new door to these verses to acquire the fullest meaning of this text. The author of Hebrews, uh, it's a, a book in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul himself, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, they use these verses in reference to Jesus. Both of them notice the tension that, yes, we were given dominion over this earth, but we're now ruled by the powers of this earth. He is fully aware of the irony in these verses that we failed our original purpose and that we're dominated by this world. But there is someone else now who has and will ultimately have dominion over all things. But to have acquired it, he had to enter into our world. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia once wrote, Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than this whole world. The king of the world in all of his majesty and honor and glory was brought into the world as a baby in the lowliest of places. It's like a king being born in a, in a dumpster in a back alleyway. In his infinite glory, God came into flesh. Fully God and fully man, fully God in all of his glory and fully man in all of his vulnerability and lowliness. This brings a whole new perspective to the mindfulness of God. God doesn't just peer at us from a distance. God became man and experienced it fully. As you experience the stress of school and the drama of relationships, um, as you experience what it's like to be in a broken family, as you wrestle with sexual temptations, as you wrestle with the temptations to put others down so that you can succeed, you can know that Jesus experienced these temptations. He experienced these things, but he overcame them on your behalf. God is so mindful of you and cares so deeply for you. He was willing to come into the frailty and the heartache of this world for you. Jesus became, as the book of Hebrews says, a little lower than the angels for a time, quoted here, in his pursuit of us. His mindfulness of us resulted in his pursuit of us by living among us. His mindfulness of us resulted in his pursuit of us. 
God entered into this sad and demanding world to fulfill what we could never achieve. Where Adam and ourselves failed to live out the glorious calling of being human, Jesus fully succeeded. Jesus lived as the perfect human. Where we are enslaved by things like our parents' expectations of us, and by our grades, and by work and school, by all these different things, Jesus was fully free in the way he lived. And he lived only by his Father's will. It was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, who prays to the Father, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus, unlike Adam and ourselves, lived a life perfectly to his Father's will, even unto death. And he did it because he, the Father, and the Spirit are mindful of you and care for this creation of his. As the writer of Hebrews said, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus lived fully human, fully as we were supposed to, but took the death that we fully deserve. Jesus lived fully human, fully as we were supposed to, but took the death that we fully deserve. And in tasting death for us and being resurrected back into glory, Jesus retook his place as rightful king. I mentioned that Paul and the author of Hebrews saw this psalm in a new light in Jesus. And Paul mentions that in Jesus now being crowned with glory and honor that we too in the resurrection resurrection will follow suit. And he adds that at the end of time, Jesus will have dominion over all things. And he'll bring death. He'll bring defeat to the final enemy. Death. All will finally be set right in this world. The order will be restored. Jesus will be the king and evil and death and darkness will be destroyed. We will live in resurrected bodies instead of these cursed bodies. We'll live in resurrected bodies rather than these bodies of death. We will no longer live for our selfish ends, but for the good of the king and his good kingdom. Our humanly glory will be restored. We'll live like we're supposed to. We'll live like we were always intended to. We'll no longer be slaves to this world. And we too will never again taste the curse of death. Being a Christian means that you're becoming more fully human again. And this is good news. This is good news, guys. As a Christian, you can be assured of this. That this life you live now is the worst life that you will ever live. And that might sound like bad news, but the good news is that the life to come is far more glorious, far more wonderful, one in which Jesus will be our king and will dwell among us. And by the Spirit's work in you, you can begin to live in the same freedom in which Jesus lived right now. You can work without the pressure of feeling like you need to build your entire identity upon it. You can actually begin to love those who are below you because they're actually created in the image of God. 
And by his grace, you can begin to be a little bit less selfish with your time instead of feeling the need to study all the time because ultimately, these things that you do to bring praise to yourself ultimately will pass away. But on the other hand, knowing this will allow you to work harder because God has actually created you to work. But you can do it with with the freedom of knowing that Jesus has earned the righteousness that you ultimately could not earn on your own. And because a good and majestic king died in our place, we can ultimately begin to live as honorable members of his kingdom, as lights in a very, very dark world, and as ambassadors of hope in a world of sadness and despair. In Jesus, the curse that Adam brought is slowly being reversed. And we can begin to live without being enslaved to this world. And in Jesus, you can begin to live as you were fully intended to live, as a human, as the pinnacle of God's creation. I hope you see that. I hope, and I hope you begin to see and to taste the fact that Jesus knows what it's like to be human in this world that can be often sad, but often full of joy. I hope you can see that we have a good king and we have a God who's mindful of us individually. I hope we, I want to pray and that we would begin to believe that more and live that out more. So would you pray with me? Father, who are we that you are mindful of us? Thank you that you care for us, that you care for your earth and your creation. Thank you that you have come for us. Thank you that you have sent Jesus for us. And thank you that even now you have sent the Spirit to dwell within us. Thank you for the ways in which you have been at work and are writing a story that we can't fully grasp. Thank you for the fact that we know who Jesus is as our King. We thank you and pray this all in his glorious name. Amen.